Welcome to the second episode of the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Our guest for this podcast is our dear friend, Adam Sud, who is an international speaker for awareness of mental health and addiction. In 2012, Adam's life was completely out of control. He was struggling with multiple addictions, serious chronic diseases, and mental health disorders. His life nearly ended when he attempted suicide by drug overdose. He checked into a rehab and with the help of his remarkable parents and by adopting a plant-based diet, he began a journey that led to an amazing recovery. He's now a diabetes and food addiction coach for Mastering Diabetes, which is a program that focuses on reversing insulin resistance using low-fat, whole-food, plant-based nutrition. He also works with Engine 2 and Whole Foods Market's Total Health Immersion Team. He is an amazing force behind the plant-based movement and has worked in recovery centers using plant-based nutrition as an adjunct tool for recovery and relapse prevention. He has also founded a nonprofit that is dedicated to advancing research on diet and mental health and addiction. He firmly believes that the simplest of things done consistently can make the most profound change of your life and that self-love is the root of all recovery. Thank you, Adam, for being here today with us and sharing your story. I am so honored to be here. You know, um, I'm, I have to say that uh, I've, I've been able to have conversations with a lot of amazing people, but today is, is I've never been more honored and privileged to, to, uh, to have a conversation about my story uh, than I am with you. So I'm so, really so awesome. excited to. It was true for I, us. Absolutely. absolutely. So Adam, <clears throat> you've spoken about your journey quite a few times with different individuals and yeah. um, you talk about how you struggled with addiction. Tell us, tell us about your feelings of what you went through and where you are now today. So to really get an understanding of what I was going through, um, you know, I have to take, take this story back to my childhood um, to like to be the, the genesis of, of this idea that, that I, I believed that there was an inherent uh, lack in me, there was something that was broken, um, something that wasn't right, um, and that that was in my relationship with food and my and my family. And you know, my parents they only had the best intentions. Their the way that they communicated with me was in with you know they wanted me to be happy, they wanted me to be healthy, and so I got criticized um, for my inability to refrain from eating junk food, and I didn't understand why it was so difficult for me um, and seemingly so easy for others um, to resist eating these foods. Um, and it was confusing because a lot of them were in our house. A lot of the foods were in our house. And so I don't know, why is it, why was it okay for someone to have it sometimes? And, and it seemed like every time I went for it, it was the wrong time. And um, I, I, I so needed approval. I needed it so badly and I wanted to feel that my parents felt I was enough, that I was worthy, that I was complete. And so I started closet eating at about age 10. Um, I would hide in my bedroom. I would hide in the dining room with the lights off. I would sit in corners in the dark um, and I would eat, you know, I would eat junk food and, and I would, I would hide myself from them uh, more so than the behavior. I was hiding myself 
um, I was so afraid. I was so afraid that um, I can remember, I can remember those feelings of being in the corner in the dining room. It was right next to the kitchen. So I grabbed food and I'd run through this little doorway and turn to the left and get in the corner and be really dark. And I remember it was cold because it was a hardwood floor. And I can remember listening so intently to making sure that I didn't hear someone's footsteps because I was so afraid that if I was seen that they would know, well, there's, there's, there's Adam. That's who he really is. And that person is not worthy of my acceptance. And I was terrified. And it was at about the same time that uh, I started to develop um, issues with school. Uh, I didn't really fit into the traditional environment of school. Uh, and this was in the 80s, uh, late 80s, when, you know, Ritalin was becoming the, the thing to put kids on. And so I was taken to a doctor and um, I was diagnosed with ADHD. And again, my parents, with only the best intentions, were listening to the doctor's advice. And listening to the, the school counselor's advice that um, there was here. And here I was hearing people, my parents, my teachers, my this doctor saying, well, there's something about you that doesn't work properly, uh, that doesn't fit into the way the rest of the world moves, the way the rest of the, rest of the world wants you to be. And so um, we're going to put you on this medicine. And this medicine is going to fix you. This, these weren't the words they actually used, but this is what I heard. This, this is how I heard it. That there's something about you that doesn't work right and something that we don't agree with. But as long as you take a pill, you're fine. Otherwise, you're not. And so from that point on, I always looked at other people as an indication of whether or not I was enough. Was there something about something I did, said, or acted, or appeared that was bothering someone and when I notice it, I, that was a cue. Okay, I have to change me to be enough of the person that they wanted me to be. And so in high school, we moved to Austin, Texas from Houston. And so I started high school not knowing anybody. I was a little bit overweight because I was very late to start puberty. And um, I can remember I only had a few friends and, and uh, they, they had changed my prescription from Ritalin to Adderall. And I got invited to a party and uh, a friend of a friend asked me if I could bring my Adderall with me, the bottle with me. And, and I didn't. I was like, you know, why in the world would they want me to bring my Adderall? And, you know, because, again, this is now the mid to late 90s when the real Adderall craze hadn't really started yet. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I said, well, well sure, I guess. Um, why? And uh, they said, well, because if you take a lot of it, you can stay up all night and it's both the fun, just, you know, you bring your prescription with you. And I brought it because I wanted to be somebody that had something of value to others, right? I wanted to be the person that others wanted around. And so of course I brought it and I'm going to tell you, I remember the moment that not the moment that I took more, but the moment it started working, it was like, boom, I was instantly the person I always thought I needed to be. Um, Adderall is an amphetamine, um, as you all know. And so when you're on an amphetamine, which is speed, you don't have an appetite. So there's, there's my issue with my weight taken care of. Uh, I had boundless energy and I had unlimited confidence. So I was able to talk to whoever I wanted about whatever they wanted to talk about because everything becomes interesting when you're on Adderall. And um, I was making friends. I was, again, you know, I, I, I had for a while now and still was having struggle with my work ethic or lack thereof. And so that was causing friction between myself and my father. And 
I, I so desperately sought after my dad's um, approval so much because my dad, I think that it's, it's partly this. My dad lost his father when he was 25 years old. When my, when my dad was 25 years old, his father died from colon cancer. And I never got to meet my, my, my dad's uh, biological father. And my dad talked about him like he was the king of the world. And, and I wanted to, my dad and I to have a relationship to where my dad saw me as like the greatest thing on earth. And I saw my dad as the greatest thing on earth. And I did at the time. My dad is and was a superhero to me. Um, and when I was on a lot of Adderall, my work ethic was amazing. Mm-hmm. I could get as much as work as I needed to get done. I could do it and I could focus solely on it. So my relationship with my dad started to get better. And the more of it I took, the more the person I thought I was supposed to be, I was able to become. And it worked. And it, 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 I honestly felt like it saved me. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I continued to abuse it throughout high school. And I had girlfriends. I had loads of friends. I had, you know, I got a scholarship to the, to the college that I wanted to go to. Um, I mean, I had a blast in high school. I really, I really, really loved my experience as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I really attributed it to, thank goodness, Adderall was there. And uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, in college, the drug started to, uh, well, it stopped working um, to where I would need to take more and more and more of it to, you know, chase that original feeling. And um, more became never enough. And never enough became overwhelming uh, to where there was this constant evaluation of a problem that was how much do I have left? How long will it last? When it runs out, where will I get more? How much will that cost? It was like this constant evaluation of this situation all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was, it was no longer what was my classes like? Am I excited about the things I'm doing in school? Or what am I, what's my family doing? What are my friends doing? And it was not about developing a, uh, and understanding who I was as a, uh, an individual and as an adult. Um, it was just, I got to get more. I, I've got to have more. And it became so overwhelming that I ended up dropping out of school and moving back to Austin. Um, I think it was my sophomore year of college. And um, I did so because I knew in Austin that uh, I knew all the dealers and I knew that there were doctors there that I could scam, that I could have, uh, I started doctor shopping, which is where you have multiple doctors prescribing the same medications without them knowing about each other, which is a felony. Um, I ended up, becoming a criminal where I was dealing drugs on the street. I was stealing from people. I was scamming everybody I could to get money or things from them, uh, including my family who I was consistently treating like garbage. Um, I started to forge prescriptions, uh, which is incredibly illegal. And I honestly, to this day, don't know how I avoided going to jail. Uh, I never got caught, which was, at the time, I was really happy about it, but I think that if I had, my life would have been completely different. Um, and I became increasingly depressed as I became so, so much more and more disconnected from who I truly was as an authentic individual. And um, I began to be very isolated and shut myself off away from the world and developed um, a secondary dependency on fast food. Mm-hmm. Where I would get up every single day and I would go to a place called Torchy's Tacos I would get like four potato, egg, and cheese breakfast tacos. Then I would go to a place called uh, Whataburger and get the extra large honey barbecue chicken strip sandwich meal. Then I go to McDonald's and get two supersized double quarter pounder meals. Then for dinner, I get an extra large pizza from Papa John's. 
with a side of the chicken strips. And then at like three in the morning, I go back to Whataburger for three of their breakfasts on a bun sandwiches with sausage. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the course of the day, I drink like 15 sodas. I remember going to the gas station just to go get like ice cream and just like eat it there and then throw the trash in my car. My car was as much a hoarder scene as my apartment was. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just covered in garbage because I, I don't understand it. I don't know why how it all happened. It it wasn't like, it wasn't like a slow progression into this. It was almost like all of a sudden I was there and I was so far gone. There was nothing I could do about it. And my weight reached like 350 pounds. And, um, my dad, um, you know, who, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I had been treating very, very poorly. He and my mom. Um, the only time I would ever talk to them was to, you know, get money from them or to yell at them and blame them for everything that was going wrong. All the pain that I was experiencing had to be someone else's fault. And who better of a target than your parents, the people who will love you no matter what. Um, and my dad came to me and said, you know, Adam, I have an opportunity to send you to a seven-day retreat with a man named Rip Esselstyn who uh, created the, the engine Two diet and um, you can spend seven days at this retreat where you're there with other doctors and thought leaders um, who can teach you how, if you adopt a plant-based diet, you can reverse disease. You can, you know, get healthy. And Adam, was you know, your dad in the field of health or was he primed about, you know, healthy lifestyle? My dad, um, my dad, again, you know, I think that he had a fear of disease watching his dad die. Um, and, uh, he has, he had been a marathoner. He was a, he was the captain of his high school basketball team. And then when he realized he wasn't good enough for basketball in college, he became a marathoner. Um, he was always the salad guy. Everybody knew him as the salad guy. Uh, and you know, um, I think that he was just afraid of, you know, losing his son. And unfortunately when my dad becomes fearful, he becomes hypercritical before he becomes open. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that it's just easier for some people to um, to criticize and try to correct the situation than it is to to open up and be vulnerable and say I'm afraid and I love you and mm-hmm. sorts of things, which I know is what he was. It was just really more of my inability to understand his way of showing his love for me, mm-hmm. um, and so I became resentful. Um, but he has been a part. He's been a part of Whole Foods Market. He was part of the founding of Whole Foods Market. And so when Rip Esselstyn joined uh, Whole Foods Market as a healthy eating ambassador, that's how he had the opportunity to do this for me. Right. And I, the, only, the only reason I went was because I knew if I said yes, I could fool my dad into believing I was doing something he wanted me to do and I could ask him for more money. Mm. That was it. And I was, I was high every single day that I was at the retreat. I brought drugs with me. Um, I was very diaphoretic. Um, so I was very flush and sweating all the time and sweat through shirts and I smelled incredibly toxic. Um, I, I was very disruptive just by my appearance. Um, in fact, there was conversations at the uh, retreat, uh, that I didn't know until years later, um, that, uh, in fact, I was so disruptive to other participants that they were considering having me removed from the program. Wow. Um, and, uh, the last night of the, retreat. And the thing is, I listened to everything that was being said. I listened to these, um, you know, pioneering doctors like Esselstyn and Clapper and, and Jeff Novick and Doug Lyle, all these people talking. And, 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 and listen, as a person who grew up loving animals, uh, there's a, one of the stories that I, I love the most is my mom tells the story of me after me being born. And I first left the hospital, my grandmother 
took me outside and she put my hand on a leaf and um, she said, this is nature. And if you love it, it'll love you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And um, I, so I had this connection with nature from my mom, from my grandmother, from just from my entire life. And so it spoke to this core value of mine that I never wanted to hurt an, an animal, but society had separated me from seeing food as animals. And so then I learned, I, you know, it made sense. I could reverse the, the feelings that I was having this, this constant pain of being alive. And there was a speaker there the last night that uh, named Dick Beardsley, who talked about his career as one of the best marathoners in history. And the story really started how, uh, after that, when he was on his family farm and he got caught up in machinery and he nearly died and he got addicted to painkillers. Mm-hmm. And I listened to him tell his story about how he moved through the world and the way that he treated and the, the track that his life was headed down. And I said, wow, that's, that's me. You know, and, and I, I, I had almost reached a point where I was desperate enough to ask for help. And I wanted that night to be the night that I did it, that I walked up to this gentleman and said, you know, oh, I know that for a fact that if I say this to you, you're not going to judge me for it. And I really need help. I'm struggling with substance abuse. And um, I just wasn't, I wasn't ready for it. And uh, I left that night and things just kept getting worse um, to where life had become painful in every aspect, Uh, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It was just, it was such an agonizing struggle to be alive. And I had, I can remember having a conversation with my brother. I don't know, I can't remember what, where in the timeline it was after I left the immersion, but I, uh, but I know it was after the retreat that I called my brother and and I said to him, my brother is my identical twin and he and I are incredibly close. And we've been incredibly close literally our entire life. Um, And I said, Bobby, you know, I don't know uh, what to tell you. I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I just, I, you know, I'm so miserable. And, um, but I want you to know that no matter how bad things get, I'll never commit suicide because I would never want to live my life without you. And I would never want to let you live your life without me. And, on August 21st of 2012, I'd come home from shopping at a store, a special X, you know, plus size store because I had to get uh, pants that had a size 50 waist. And um, I stood in front of the mirror and I took off my shirt and I looked at myself in the mirror and I just started beating myself over and over and over again. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, I hate you. You're worthless. Um, and I walked back into the living room. And I said to myself, you know, this, none of this is ever going to get any better. And as much as I love my family, I, I'm just doing nothing but causing them misery. And I attempted suicide by overdose. Um, I grabbed a handful of pills. I threw them in my mouth. And the next thing I know, uh, I'm waking up on the floor in a puddle of vomit, surrounded by empty pill bottles and fast food garbage. Uh, I was 30 years old. And um, I had a very, very surreal moment where I had come to a very clear understanding that if I didn't radically change the way that I moved through the world, that my brother, my sister, my mom, and my dad were going to spend every day of the rest of their lives asking themselves why I needed to eat and drug myself to death. And I thought about my dad, who at this point had lost his dad and his mom early. My grandfather, who I never met, died of 
colon cancer. My grandmother died of an accident. She fell in her apartment, in her house. Um, and this was on August 21st of 2012. My dad's birthday is August 28th. So if I had been successful, my dad and my family would have spent my dad's 60th birthday burying their son. And I didn't want that to happen. And I called my parents and I asked for help. And two weeks later, I checked into rehab. And within 72 hours, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, and attention deficit disorder. They put me on a a cabinet's worth of medication, and there was no explanation of what it was. I didn't know it. I I mean, I'd heard bipolar disorder, but I didn't understand it. I was like the most, most people are like, oh, bipolar disorder. That's like some kind of a depression thing where people get angry and then they get really happy and then they get really sad. I didn't understand it. I had no idea. And um, I felt utterly destroyed because I thought I had an understanding of what I needed to do. I mm-hmm. thought I had a, a clear understanding of what my, my road to recovery looked, looked like. And it became shockingly apparent that sobriety was not enough. Yeah. sobriety in and of itself was just I'd be dead in five years I agree yeah. I agree that one thing that stands out from your story Adam is even when you're discussing your childhood your journey through you know um, addiction with food and then with with drugs is something happened sometime where that string of communication never occurred I think the understanding of the effect of a particular lifestyle or a habit was never conveyed to you. And I think that's one of the themes that we see in our practice, in our clinic as well. Communication, correct. Communication with another individual, whether it's a parent, a sibling, or the community, and understanding the risk factors for health and wellness is not really done in in a good way. And not only that... Not only that, you know, I, the way I was communicated to by doctors, by psychiatrists, because I'd been put on antidepressants uh, since I was in high school, you know, or they wanted me to be put on antidepressants. And then, you know, they, they come to these, and like biology plays a role. Of course it does. You know, we all, we all understand this, but they come to you and they say, well, it's, it's a serotonin issue. And, you know, you're not making enough, you know, some people don't produce enough serotonin. And, and so you do this and this, you take this medication and it fixes it that's really dismissive of the pain, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, yeah. that makes my pain meaningless. Exactly. And so that means that I'm hurting because I have a broken mechanism in my body that I'm a piece of machinery. And I sincerely resented that. Yeah. And there was, it was, you know, I, the day I met the psychiatrist, they wanted to put me on medication. I come in and I'm feeling a perfectly human emotion, sadness, fear, anxiety. These are human emotions. They happen for a reason. And now it's not. Now it's because something isn't working right. Well, what does that mean? I don't, I, I didn't understand it. And that I think is a big problem. I, so we I, have a, a, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No, it's a humongous problem. It's the medical problem. It's the healthcare system, or we call it the sick care system problem. For yeah. a sick care system, you need a name, you need a quick little mechanism, and you need a pill to give to it because yeah. we only have 15 minutes to see the patients. There's no time to connect to that person, no time to connect to their journey, no time to go past a name, a naming or a title or a mechanism to the complexity of the person and their journey. 
I mean, what you did just describe is is typical and untypical because it's a whole spectrum. There are those who come from broken families and yours wasn't so broken. Right. Uh, it, it could be a personal little journey, Eddie, that actually takes them out of the center or genuine self. Look mm -hmm. at the, the complexity of what's required to connect to that person and bring them back to their genuine self. As a physician, 99.9% yeah. .9 of us, because of the financial system mechanism and the educational system, we are forced to see the patient as a name. In fact, majority of the names are not even real. We either say idiopathic, which means we don't know, but we get, even that was given a euphemism, a name that, that's really technical, or yeah. we give it a name without really being certain of it. And then, of course, then the mechanism connects to it, so it's two layers of falsehood. And it's amazing how this system that perpetuates itself through naming and pill-pushing just continues to create a lot more disease than solution. In fact, as, as you know this better than we do, the proportion of depression, anxiety, and substance abuse has not decreased over the years. Yeah. It's only it's increased. Yeah. It has. Yeah. Yeah. It's gone up, steadily gone up increasingly every single year over the last 40 years. Yeah. And this is when the antidepressant uh, movement started yes. ever since it's gone yeah. up when, if it was a mechanical problem, it should have gone down. Exactly. If this was an issue of biology and these pills treat the biological mechanism. It should have gone down, but it's not because we have a, a huge misunderstanding of pain in this culture. We're not willing to understand where it is. We'd rather just get rid of it. Yeah. without the acceptance that pain is a completely reasonable response to life. Yes. It's part of, in, if anything, like pain is part of love. Pain is part of joy. Fear is part of joy. Uh, anxiety is part of excitement. These things are the opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're connected because one is dependent upon the other. Yeah. Yes. And so that, that's, that's part of the, you know, the issue with, I was never given an opportunity. It was never communicated in a way to me that, that there's nothing wrong mm -hmm. that I feel these things. Yeah. You're yeah. human. And therefore you're, in fact, it's because you're human and complete that you have these feelings. Correct. And, um, and so I, for the, my entire life, ever since I was able to have, you know, more of a complex cognitive ability, I felt lost. I felt broken. Yeah. Because I wasn't able to truly understand how I fit into the world as an emotional person. Correct. Uh, and I can remember feeling that, that feeling in that doctor's office in rehab being told, you know, you're, here's another way you're broken. Here's another way you're broken. Here's another thing that we were going to put a name to that says what your problem is yeah. rather than, oh, wow, you must have gone through some really, you know, in, intense stuff. Um, because all of these things have to be a, a reasonable response to what you've gone through. And um, I can remember leaving the doctor's office one and I called my dad and told him I, was, I actually told him I was leaving rehab. And, um, I, you know, which is typical, I think, for a lot of people when they go into rehab the first few days, they're like, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, but he, I, I can remember this conversation very, very clearly. Um, he said, you know, I told him, I said, dad, I can't deal with this. Um, I thought all I had to do was get sober. Um, now I find out I have diabetes, I have heart disease, and I have all these emotional and psychological conditions that I don't even know what they are, let alone how to deal with them. And, and he said, you know, Adam, let's just, let's just say 
that the heart disease and the diabetes that you do have them. I'm not saying that you do, but let's just have a conversation where, you know, for the sake of argument, let's just say that you do. Well, I know that you went, that you learned at this engine two retreat that, that this is completely reversible. And I also know that you learn how to reverse these things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Adam, if there's something about your life that is causing you pain and you can do something about it, then it's not a problem. And if there's something about your life that you don't like and there's nothing you can do about it, then it's not a problem. It's just the way things are. And in that moment, he helped me realize that, yes, I was the problem. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a full understanding of how to live as a healthy, physical, and emotional person. But at the end of the day, it was my fault. I was the cause, which means I'm the solution. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to wait for anyone or anything to start to make changes that brought positivity into my life. Now, in rehab, I wasn't able to make dietary changes because unless before you come in, you say, oh, I have X, Y, Z dietary restrictions, there's not a lot you can do. They have dietitians there. And while I know they want to help people, I don't agree with the way that they, <laughs> the way that they feed people. Um, uh, but when I left rehab, I moved into a sober living facility. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I said, okay, I can't, I can't really put, put my hands around this whole depression, bipolar addiction thing. It's not something I could track. It wasn't something I could measure. And so for me, that made it difficult. But I can certainly track and measure my chronic disease outcomes. I, can, I know that if I do X and Y, I'll get Z. And so that's what I decided to do. I was like, all right, I'm going to make the foundation upon which I recover reversing these chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. And and that was the way I thought about it at first, but that sort of changed quickly because the first few days I got up and I would go to the cabinet and I'd open up the pantry and there would be two choices staring me in the face. Fruity Pebbles, which I love. I love Fruity Pebbles. That was my favorite cereal. (laughs) Oatmeal, which I also liked. I didn't, it's not that I disliked oatmeal. I like oatmeal. I liked it then. Um, And here I am very sick. Um, my blood pressure was like 210 over a hundred. My fasting blood glucose was 390. They put me on the highest amount of metformin. They had me on cholesterol medication, blood pressure medication. And here I am knowing the consequences of choosing fruity pebbles. I know that if I choose this, I'm going to continue to get, it's going to fuel my disease. It's not going to help me at all. I also know that if I choose the oatmeal, that it's going to start to reverse the disease processes. That's going to start to make me feel better. I understood these, I understood this situation. So why in the world did I still want to choose the Fruity Pebbles? Why was this a difficult situation for me? I didn't understand why this wasn't simply intellect and will. Why could I not know what to do, want to do it? And then that's it. That's all. That's end of story. And then uh, I remembered that Doug Lyle gave, gave a presentation about called the pleasure trap. And I remember it briefly, but I didn't really recall all of it. And so I went and I found his, his TED talk online and I watched his TED talk, the pleasure trap, where he actually explained that there actually is a biological mechanism that compels us to seek out behaviors that create the highest dopamine response mm-hmm. because throughout the human evolution, dopamine has been our body's way of letting us know that we've done something biologically beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately in the modern environment, we've created substances and behaviors specifically for the purpose of dopamine without it being biologically beneficial. So we don't interpret it properly. So I have this understanding that when I would do 
popped 450 milligrams of Adderall, which I was doing. I was doing 450 milligrams of Adderall a day. Um, When I would do that or when I would eat Fruity Pebbles, my body would respond by going, bravo. I don't know what that was, but it has to be the right thing. It's actually got to be the most beneficial thing you've ever done because we have never experienced a pleasure response that high. Anytime you have the opportunity to do it, we're going to compel you. Your biology is going to compel you to seek out that behavior and do it again. So I sat there understanding that the reason why when I was staring both of those choices in the face, the reason why I felt like I wanted to do the wrong thing, knowing it was wrong, was because my body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. It, it is. It is. Uh, the, the biology, the evolution of it is it's remarkable. Remember that we didn't have the Adderalls, the, uh, the amphetamines, the cocaines, the drugs, sugar the, or the sugar, yeah, exactly, and the, and the high levels of fatty food that increase survival value that quickly. So when we're living in a world where those, those stimuli aren't present, and when you do have it, and the only form of it is a high sugar diet once in a while or a high, high fatty diet, and your entire survival and evolution is focused on getting that immediate gratification, both physiologically and emotionally, that's it. Your whole dopamine, serotonin pathways are designed to, to strive to get that. So there's no connection long term. It's immediate survival. And yeah. the long term component is actually powerful because there's thought, but there's not a very strong connection to the limbic emotional and satisfaction pathways. There's a book, Emotional Intelligence, um, which, which speaks to this very clearly. That little emotional old brain is so much more powerful than the thinking long-term brain. Now, when you get caught in that trap of the immediate and you don't have the long-term stimuli creating a soft you know, barrier, then there's no way you can make that distinction. And that, that stimulus is so powerful that, that Fruity Pebbles becomes more powerful than cocaine, than amphetamines, than anything else, because it's still that immediate gratification. It's, it's remarkable that, that you beautifully stated that in that picture. And that happens in every household, in every home that we go to or we hear in communities. Absolutely. Yeah. And think about this, you know, never in the course of human evolution have we had a food source that was high salt, high fat, and high sugar all at the same time. Very true. But that's every food choice today. Yes. Every food choice today triggers dopamine pathways, three dopamine pathways that have never been triggered at the same time ever in the course of human evolution. Yeah. So our body just goes, holy crap, do that every time you have an opportunity because that's going to keep us alive. And it's got to be rare because we've never seen it. Yeah. So get it while you can. And it really took the shame off of me. It, it, understanding the pleasure trap removed all this shame because I could understand that, yes, there is, there is psychological, there's emotional issues that I'm dealing with, but there's a part of it that's biological. Yeah. And that biological mechanism is completely normal and completely human. And that if I was to simply remove these behaviors long enough, eventually those dopamine receptors would reset my sensitivity to salt, fat, and sugar would reset, and I would actually wake up one day, and the oatmeal wouldn't be a chore. And if I was simply willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable, eventually I'd get up, and oatmeal would, I'd actually look forward to it. 
Mm-hmm. And anybody on the outside looking in would say, oh, well, the reason why he's willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable, his why is because he's obese, he has diabetes and heart disease, and he nearly died from a substance abuse. Absolutely wrong. Mm-hmm. None of those was the reason why I decided to do this. I, yeah, I was. I was obese, and I didn't want to be. I had heart disease and diabetes, and I didn't want heart disease and diabetes, and I nearly killed myself from substance abuse and uh, complete denial of self. And I, I, I didn't want to die. Why? What was it about my life that I loved enough that I was willing to be comfortable being uncomfortable in order to experience that more completely and more authentically? Not what was it about my life that I hated enough? I was not going to try to hate myself out of a bad situation. Yeah. I wanted to get up every single day and find ways to love myself into a positive situation. This was not about removing negativity from my life. And I don't even think people do that. I don't think we remove negativity from our life. I think that what we do is we find ways to increasingly add positivity to our life. And over the course of time, that increase of positivity and positive behaviors overtakes the negative. Where so much of our focus is on how do I connect to this, these positive behaviors Mm -hmm. and create an environment for positive change on a daily basis. That's what I wanted to do. Adam, you're, you're, you're more connected to the meaning of, of psychiatry and psychology and, and human consciousness than, than, than most psychiatrists we reach to speak to. The neg- negativity, no matter how bad it is, is not going to get you out of it because it just creates more uh, what I call limbic inertia. It stops you from moving forward because you actually feel bad about yourself. So if you feel bad about yourself, then why move? Just let it happen. Right. And that's the resting state of letting things happen. And, and, and then the cycle just gets worse and worse. The, the thing that gets you out of it is the positive motive force. Yeah. The purpose. I think, you know, yeah. exactly. I think that, um, you know, fear and hate can be very strong catalysts yes. for short-term, you know, sort of short-term change, right? It can get you moving. Like fear can get someone to say, oh my God, I don't want to have heart attack. I have to start doing something, right? And that can work in the short term. But the, I think in my opinion, the strongest catalyst for long-term change is love. Yeah. And I saw every single day when I got up and I prepared a meal on a plate that was about health and wellness. That it was about creating an opportunity for, for me to be healthier today than I was the day before. That that was a true act of self-care and self-love. And that was me saying to myself that I matter and that it was an affirmation of recovery. And it, it helped me understand because I saw my blood glucose values dropping. I saw the weight coming off and I saw, you know, the blood pressure coming down. And it made me realize that the only reason why that was possible is because I am now and I have always been worthy enough and, uh, and capable of becoming the person that I've always been. Yeah. It wasn't about fixing something first. I didn't have to become someone new in order to recapture my life. In fact, I had to return to that authentic self. And I've always been healthy enough. I've always been worthy enough. And I've always been, been complete. I'm always who I'm supposed to be. And, that's only the, and that is the only reason why I'm capable of making change. If I had to become somebody new, well, then, you know, I, then the change is impossible in the moment. Only if I'm enough now am I capable of change. Yeah. And in three months, um, my blood glucose was down to, you know, the, the high seventies and I stopped taking the medication and, uh, without talking to my doctor, which I don't recommend anybody doing, but I'm just telling my story. Um, and I went to see my endocrinologist at, uh, 
at month four and we had done some blood work for my A1C and all of this. And he comes in and he sits down and he looks at me and says, you're no longer diabetic. And I stood up and I shook his hand and I said, well, I really appreciate it, but I no longer need your services. And, <laughs> and I walked out of his office and I felt self-worth for the first time in a long time. And that self-worth made me feel like I was worth saving and helped me understand that, you know, there's only been two problems in my entire life. I didn't know how to live as a healthy emotional or physical person. Everything else was a symptom of those two things. Mm -hmm. Once I accepted that I didn't know how to live as a healthy physical or emotional person and also accepted that I didn't know any other way to do it. And that's why I ended up in the situation that I was in because I was doing what I knew and only what I knew. And I knew no other way of getting out of it. Once I accepted that, and I was finally willing to break open and say, all right, I'm done. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm going to listen to anybody who has something to offer, who's willing to offer their advice and help. I'm going to take what they, what they have to say. I'm going to try it. If it works, if I find joy in doing it, I'm going to keep it. If it works and I don't find joy in it, or if it doesn't work, I'm going to try something else that's in alignment with what I'm trying to achieve. And I'm going to move forward. Once I stopped trying to be right all the time and I tried to just be right now, I was able to learn more about myself than I've learned in my entire life. I was, when I got into recovery, I was so focused on trying to be right. Who was right and who was wrong? I, if I was right, then everyone else was wrong. And if I was wrong, then everyone else was right. And it was this constant battle of my ego. And at the end of the day, I came to this realization that it, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. It only matters if I'm willing to do what's necessary to create positive change in my life. And if that happens, who cares who's right or wrong? Yeah. I could be wrong every single day as long as what I'm doing is creating positive change because no one's going to care. My, you know, the people in my sober living facility that were helping me, they were going to come to me at the end of the day and go, I told you so. No, they were going to come up to me and go, way to go, man. Yeah. You yeah. Yeah. And um, in 10 months, I lost over 100 pounds. And within a year, I was off all of my psych meds. Wow. So all my antidepressants, my mood stabilizers, my sleeping medications, my ADHD medications. And, you know, I had, I had truly come to this understanding uh, in, in my meditation and in, in my mindfulness that most of my life, I was trying to fight and resist feelings that were, I was uncomfortable with. And in doing so, I was fighting and resisting the true understanding of myself <laughs> because those feelings, uncomfortable as they were, are healthy. Mm -hmm. They're human and they're temporary, which makes them valuable. It makes them a signal from our body saying this moment is significant. Something is occurring right now that is valuable for you to understand about yourself and how you move through the world. And in fighting and resisting those feelings, I fought and resisted that learning. And I gave myself permission to say that it's okay. And it's actually healthy and human that you're experiencing those things. Let's just sit and let's breathe. Let's let this happen. Let's take this moment and this opportunity to gain greater self-awareness and move through this feeling in a way that brings in positivity. And that's really how I crafted my recovery. Um, I did a lot of Buddhist recovery stuff. Um, I tried the AA thing. Didn't really work for me. I'm not really a big fan of abstinence. Um, that's the thing. I don't see myself as abstaining from meat, eggs, and dairy or abstaining from drug use. I get up every single day and I'm not avoiding those things. I'm accepting these other behaviors mm -hmm. that I have connected to to bring in positivity. And in doing so, the other things just don't play a role in my life anymore. 
I agree. I mean, you it's know? a zero-sum, the emotional state, even the neurotransmitter state, it's a zero-sum economics. If you fill it with positivity, if you fill it with, with, with the positive direction and purpose and, and items and things that really yeah. make you into the person, the authentic person that you, you started with, that takes place of all those ne- negative elements. Now, that's not saying that there are cases where people are profoundly addicted to, to those substances and they need much greater help and, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and different contexts. That's, that's not saying that. But for a great majority, what you just described, we're talking about the population level. Yes. We work at, in, uh, at the city and district level. And one of the districts we work in, a fairly well-to-do community, I mean, very well-to-do community, uh, some of the data came back that 45% of 11th graders have, have alcohol abuse problems. Initially, I said, no, that means use. You mean use. No, no, abuse. Yeah. Meaning daily drinking, 11th graders. Yeah. And those are not all neurotransmitter aberrants, meaning that they, they, you know, their system is already messed up and they need... No, that, that means that these people, these individuals need to connect to themselves some elements of positivity, some purpose, some meaning, and some education. And models yeah. like you, to say, you know, people like you who say, it's okay to have those feelings. I mean, my gosh, yeah. I remember my high school years. You know, you know, there were those great days where it's, you're, you think you're king of the world, and other yeah. days that you think you're the worst thing that ever lived. If that's not bipolar in, in, in a very soft way, what yeah. is? So and, every, and, it seems like every day in high school is life or death. Yes. It's like <laughs> it's either you're living it or you're dying. It's like every moment is the most intense. Like yes. that's that yeah. whole like, you just don't get it, mom. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's you know? like that. And, and they feel that. I mean, when we yeah. went to Alaska, yeah. I mean, this is why we're talking to you, Adam. You are the model person. And, and I don't mean this in a fulsome flattery way or no, because you went through it. You connected to it just not by surviving, but understanding it and, tra- and translating beautifully in stories. We went to Alaska and we met with the communities and we thought the conversation is going to be stroke or, or Alzheimer's. It wasn't. It mm-hmm. was young men committing suicide. It was young men and yeah. drug abuse and substance abuse and depression. So, and, and how do they deal with it? Most, most communities give it a name do some epidemiological studies and find out what the ratio is and the numbers are, and then say, let's educate the students or the kids about their disease, which actually initially has increased, increases the number of yeah. suicides, but then uh, yeah, bring them to clinic so we can give them medicine. That's not how we're going to solve this. We have to connect to each individual in each community uh, with, with, with the stories like yours. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that what happens is when, when they do that, when they say, okay, let's talk about suicide, all right, they just dehumanize the experience of the individual who just committed suicide. Yeah. Because you're not talking about George or Sally, you're talking about the act and not the human. Yeah. And there's this suicide, this, this feeling that this person had no other option, that the pain that they were feeling is completely reasonable. That, given maybe whatever experience that they went through. And unfortunately, like I mentioned before, we live in a culture that has this profound like intention of not wanting to understand pain. We don't want to experience it. We don't want to explain it. We don't want to understand it. We want to put a condition to it. And we want to treat it with a medication. We want to live without pain. And I'll tell you right now, 
my goal in recovery was not to live a life where I don't have urges or temptations or fears or anxiety or pain or sadness, but to have those feelings and be okay with them. As okay with those as I am with having joy and happiness and excitement and, and acceptance. I want to be, okay, I'm having sad. I'm, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling whatever I'm having right now. It's fine yeah. because it's human. And I understand that. I may not completely understand why sometimes the feelings are more intense than others, but that's okay. This moment is temporary. I, I always have the choice of sitting and breathing and saying, I'm feeling something that I maybe don't know the best way to respond to it in this moment because it's kind of overwhelming. So I'm going to sit and I'm going to breathe and I'm going to wait for the moment when it becomes clear to me how I'm going to respond in a way that brings, continues to bring in positivity. I'd rather respond to something than and just react to it. And, um, and it's so you know, critical that, that we create communities that speak in this language. Exactly. I think one of the most important things, and the highlight of your story is your mom, your dad, and your brother were a big part yeah. of your story. They were always there in the background, even if they were not there with you physically. And you mm-hmm. always knew that you had someone that you can connect with, that you can talk yeah. to. And even if they didn't understand or accept the concept of the pain that you were going through, you had that open communication channels with them. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't. Um, A lot of people don't have that luxury of having a community. And in our, in our, in our work, we've noticed that there are a lot of lonely people out there. Um, whether it's, you know, literally not being connecting to a, connected to a family member or not being able to communicate. And that's why people like you are so important to share their stories, to, to, to let people know that there is a way or actually the most important thing that you can do is communicate with yourself. That self-talk, the yeah. language that you create inside you about yourself is the most important yeah. thing that you can do to create an environment to understand yourself better. And, and, Absolutely. Yeah, and, and then this, the fact that a lot of the solutions are in that conversation and you don't, it's, whatever it is, it's fine. It's good. It's, it's part of, you know, your human journey. We, we really think whatever conversation we have is a unique one that's, that, that I'm alone in that, uh, in that journey. And, and for them to hear that, you know, you went through this. Now, the other thing you've done is also connect to another tribe, you know, there's yeah. this movement and you haven't just connected to this tribe. You're a leader in this tribe. You want to tell us a little bit about this, uh, this movement before we get to the third level, which is the research, which is changing the world. Yeah. Exactly. But the tribe component is incredibly important. Absolutely. And, and you yeah. just didn't join the tribe. <laughs> you, you may, you're, you're one of the leaders in the tribe. Well, you know, uh, I think that human beings, what we do is we thrive when we have a tribe. I mean, we, we like, I heard Johan Hari, who I, oh, I, I, I really admire this guy, said that if you, in the same way bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. Mm-hmm. And when we try to live alone, we end up anxious and sad and depressed. And that anxiety comes from the evolutionary need of having a tribe. And when we're alone, we feel like we're in danger. Um, and so I've really been able to, you know, I, I was able to come, come back from uh, recovery and, um, I had an opportunity to meet up with Rip Esselstyn and um, I went up to him and I wanted to actually, I wanted to take the opportunity to apologize to him for 
uh, the fact that I brought drugs to his retreat, that I was high all the time, um, because it, it, uh, I didn't understand at the time what a gift that, that was. And I really threatened the longevity of that program. You know, what if I had had an overdose and died there? You know, mm-hmm. that could have been the end of the whole thing. Um, and I went up there and I told him my story and he, he looked at me and said, would you be willing to come to the next retreat and share your story? And I said, absolutely. I'd never really done it before. And, um, I was, it was the engine two retreat, the engine two immersion in 2015. Um, and I came and I was only supposed to be there like a few days. I came and I shared my story and it went really well. And Rip Esselstyn came up after afterwards and he said, um, you're not going anywhere. You're going to stay the whole time and you're going to be coming back every single year to tell your story. And we want you part of the engine two team. Amazing. Um, it was amazing. He really, you know, he became a mentor and a friend to me and I joined the whole foods market, uh, total health emergence team as well. Um, and now uh, I'm also a diabetes and food addiction coach with a program called Mastering Diabetes uh, with my, some of my closest friends, Robbie Barbero and Dr. Cyrus Kambada, mm-hmm. where we help people reverse insulin resistance through the use of low-fat whole food plant-based nutrition. But I like to say like this, you know, yeah, we do give tips. Like we do have, everybody has an individualized journey that they have to make. Some people are much more insulin resistant than others. Some people are type 1 diabetics. And so there is an individualized approach and we do give I do give specialized advice to those. At the end of the day, my goal is not to help somebody reverse diabetes. They're going to do that on their own. My goal is to help somebody fall in love with the act of putting these foods on their plate and finding the joy in behaviors that bring positive change. If I can help someone do that, the rest of their life will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Diabetes will go away. The weight will either go down or come up, whatever it needs to do in order to be healthy. Um, the other conditions will take care of themselves and they will thrive in life what I want people to do. And, and, and I learned this lesson from my brother uh, because I helped my brother. He moved in with me in 2016. He was 280 pounds. He had type two diabetes and I, he was very depressed and I offered him, I said, will you come live with me and live my lifestyle? And um, he did. And in six weeks, his blood glucose was completely normal. He wasn't medicated anymore and he lost, he's lost a hundred pounds. And, and now he's, He's really become an advocate for the animal rights movement. He works with Mm -hmm. Sean Monson, who directed Earthlings. They're making a film together. He's at the slaughterhouse vigils three times a week, every single week. He's rescued animals off the trucks. He's been Mm -hmm. in the slaughterhouses. And this is a person who has a connection uh, to animals and to the the natural world that's stronger than my own. And I I like to feel like I have a very strong connection to them. Um, There's a quote, in fact, in the beginning of Earthlings, and it comes from King Lear, where King Lear is talking to the blind Earl of Gloucester, and, and he asks the blind Earl, he says, how do you see the world? And the blind Earl says, I see it feelingly. And um, that's, the way my, <laughs> that's the way my brother sees the world. And um, he came to me and he said, um, after he had you know, really recaptured his life and everything, he said, because he reads a lot of philosophy, he reads a lot, he's, he's a true Renaissance man, he's a filmmaker, he's a boxer, he's a poet, if he'd ever let someone else read his poetry, it's really brilliant, but he other people. Um, he says, Adam, there's a quote by Joseph Campbell. Joseph mm-hmm. Campbell says, we're not so much looking for the meaning of life as much as we are the experience of being alive. And that's what you've given back to me. And I, uh, nothing that I ever do in my life will ever um, come close to the feeling that I felt in that moment. Because remember, I said that the reason why I started to make this change in my life was I wanted to rediscover my authentic self. Mm -hmm. And what that meant to me was I wanted to be able to be with the people that I loved 
and just be with them instead of trying to take things from them. To have to just be with them, give them give of myself and have that be enough. And the moment I heard my brother say that, I realized that the reason why uh, I was in that moment with him was because I offered him the opportunity to be with me and that was enough. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, he completely was able to take charge of his life. And we have a, a relationship now. I mean, we've always had a very strong relationship, but it's, it's even stronger now. My dad and my mom, they're my best friends. I work with my dad. Um, I, have a, I, I get up every single day and it's, it's an amazing feeling because I, you know, I can remember days when I would get up and just everything hurt. Mm-hmm. Life hurt. And the opportunity to wake up now and truly enjoy the experience of being alive in all of its, you know, states, whether I'm sad or, or anxious or fearful or joyful or happy, all of it, I, I, I live through those moments in gratitude because to experience all of them willingly is to be human mm-hmm. and is to be authentic. And that, in my opinion, is the is the goal of my recovery is the search for the authentic self and the authentic experience of being alive. And that's why I don't really count days. I'm not, I don't care. You know, I'm not trying to be sober for the rest of my life. I'm not trying to be plant-based for the rest of my life. I, all I, all I'm trying to do is find the joy in living in a way that brings in positivity. It just so happens that that happens to be a plant-based lifestyle where I don't use substances. And so I'm not worried about the rest of my life because I know that this is the way that I'm going to move through the world. Part of it is the reconnection to nature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have, we are such a disconnected species of animal. Mm-hmm. Um, we're an earth connected species of animal. Like every other animal on this planet, we just happen to be far more intellectually capable in terms of our innovation. And in doing so, and in, in, in enchanting that, making that the most important thing that in our society, innovation and growth, we have walled ourselves away from our home behind concrete and glass. Mm-hmm. And we, we disconnect ourselves so much that we don't even put our feet in the dirt. The majority of our life will not be touching the earth. And we've done it so well for so long that it's no wonder that by the time we're old enough to start to contemplate our place in the world, we feel lost. And so for me, when I go trail running, every so many miles, I'll stop and I'll take my shoes off and I'll put my feet in the dirt and I'll put my hand on a tree and I'll just sit there and breathe with nature and I'll let her welcome me home and realize that not only do I miss nature, but there's a very good chance that nature misses me. Mm-hmm. And the connection that I have with nature is, is far beyond just a connection of physical. You know, I talked about my grandmother before when I, anytime I go somewhere new, the first thing I do when I walk out of the airport is I go and I grab a leaf. I just rub it like this with my fingers and I, and I say hello to my grandmother. When I go running on the trail, when I see a cardinal, which is her favorite animal, you know, I, it, it's, it's like I'm being, it's, it's like my grandmother saying hello to me. I could say hello to my grandmother and, you know, I'm not saying that that's what's really happening, but nature offers me that feeling yeah. and, and that's enough. And so it's become part of it to reconnect to that authentic experience of being human is to be out in nature. Um, this, we have become such a disconnected species in the way that we move and the way that we talk and the way that we live with each other. We're so focused on how do I get more so that I can live in the biggest house possible, farthest away from other people. 
And that is destroying us emotionally and psychologically. Because that is not how we live as an authentic people. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we say that you know there's a saying you you brought in quotes um, uh, from King Lear, and, and there is uh, this um, uh, concept of I think, therefore I am. A thinking being, we're not a thinking being. We're a feeling being. I feel, therefore I am. Is or I, or yeah. more importantly, the height of feeling. I love, therefore I am. And what is love? So as a neurologist, I'm going to get into the more Good. <laughs> soft concept. Love is the ability to connect, to empathize, to connect beyond yeah. self, beyond what we've, these walls that you're talking about, that, you know, concrete walls. We've actually put those walls starting in our home, you know, gender, race, yeah. community, religion, nationality, species, living beings, yeah. we have connect, disconnected and created wall upon wall. And these walls are way stronger than concrete walls because they're the kind of walls that closes eyes and emotions and, and actually just doesn't create walls, creates hate and separation and in subtle terminology. People think it's when the language of hate yeah. comes in hard. No, it's very subtle because it's first thing is language of separation. So if we're yeah. talking about neurology, and neuroscience, we are a loving being. That dopamine center starts with loving self and then loving others beyond self. And if we can just allow that, that positivity, it's beautiful how you're connecting all this, which is it starts with that positive element. Don't try to stop the hate because it's actually very amorphous. How do you find out that hate within you? Psychiatrists and psychoanalysts can't do it for decades. Start working on the love and opening up the walls and reaching out mm -hmm. to yourself. <laughs> you started with reaching out to yourself saying, oh, it's okay that I feel pain right now. I feel angry, I feel sad. Then you reach out to others and others and others and their boundaries just grow. And that becomes all encompassing. Yeah. And, and yeah. even the, the element that you said when you run and you take your shoes off and connect to the ground, yeah. We're not a separation from this. It's not, it's almost nowadays, it's uh, doing it on a computer, on a treadmill with a, a screen showing you running in Hawaii. Yeah. Is that the same thing running on the, on the sand? No. Go out there and run on the sand. We have separated yeah. ourselves where reality is no longer reality. And, and people think that this is too soft of a concept. It's not. We are, mm -hmm. we're emotional beings. And if we accept that with the bad and, and the good, then that's where the journey first starts. When we start with a simple thing, like the food that goes in, into your mouth, start with the selfish part. This food is going to give me love. And in eating it, I'm going to give that love. And then what you've done is take it to the next step. Go and educate others or not. The word education is too top down. Help share that with others. And that concept, no judgment, no, you know, looking down on other people who do other things, just showing the beauty of this, you know. I had diabetes, 300, you know, fasting glucose of 300, that's, that's remarkable. Uh, we've had patients with hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month marker, in the 14, 15, 18 range. And it, no amount of lecturing is going to reverse that. No amount of fear that you're adore, you know, a step away from heart attack is going to stop that. It's just a positive, beautiful, self-building, uh, self-finding pathway. Yeah. So we, yeah, we have to, 
Exactly. We have to find ways to empower that individual to understand that, yeah, this is a diagnosis, but you're not broken. Yeah. yeah. You, you are now and have always been complete and human and worthy and enough. And powerful. And, and powerful. And yes. what if everybody were, was willing to accept that in this moment, that they have everything they've ever needed to return to that authentic self, that true experience of being alive. There's so much of this fear um, is, is, is built up in this idea that somebody understands something that I don't have, or somebody is capable of doing something that I'm not capable of. That's why they're healthy and I'm not. I'm not physically capable of it, which is completely false. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not emotionally capable of it, which is completely false. Everybody on this planet, every human being on this planet is now enough. And I just, I I can't stress that. I can't stress that enough because it's so necessary. With all of this pathology and diagnoses that are given, it's just these names and these labelings of these systems that make us feel like broken machines. And over the course of time, we're communicating in a way where they're not even talking about the human. They're talking about the system. And then we're separating ourselves from it. And then we believe that because the system is broken, we're broken. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, in my opinion, is a disservice to all human beings. It is. Um, it is. True. Very true. It is. Yeah, the, 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 the concept that you can actually just take one small step and that's, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Because people get the false idea that when they see others who are thin and together that they have everything figured out. In fact, yeah. some of the most dysfunctional people psychologically I know are very physically fit. They do marathons, they do all kinds of stuff, but physically and emotionally they're broken. So controlling an outcome is not the answer. No. Controlling an outcome to a physical state, you know, some of these models that are, you know, thin as anything, it's not that they have them, you know, everything figured out. It's not. So that physical outcome that we are always sold, that if you don't look a certain way and you don't behave a certain way or fit in the box, uh, fit in the box emotionally, socially, and that you're not, you're, you're broken. It can't be further from the truth. Yeah. All of us have those broken parts and the, uh, and, and the way we look if you know, out there is not an indication. It's, it's the, the way you've reached there, what's going on inside of you. And most importantly, again, I'm going to come back to you accepting that entirety, that, that entirety of the package. It starts there. And yeah. accepting that everybody has that. Everybody has that. Everybody, everybody yeah. is, is, is completely imperfect. Yeah. In the, in the most healthy way possible. Exactly. That, uh, and, 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 and recognizing that sort of removes this pressure that you've got to be perfect in everything that you do or else you don't have it together. I, I, I'll be the first to say that I do not have it all figured out. I don't. I yeah. certainly don't. And there, there, I have really bad days. I have great days. I have anxiety. Uh, I have fears. I have all these things because I'm perfectly imperfect and yes. in, complete, in the most complete way possible. And, and accepting that actually opens up so many more doors. Right. Because if you're not afraid of perfection or, or imperfection, then you can do anything and fail and it's okay. Yeah. You know, we have, uh, you know, our two kids, we have a, a 11-year-old daughter and a, a 14-year-old son and uh, Sophie came to us and uh, a few few months ago and said, you know, dad, I'm, I'm, I'm so sad that I'm not as motivated as everybody else. And this is a girl that's, uh, you know, 
what she's achieved. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, I said, uh, and you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very sad about that. I'm not as motivated as Alex and mom and you know, I said, you know, I said, what is, what is your purpose? I mean, why are you saying that? And, and she says, you know, I don't, I, I haven't achieved as much as everybody else. I said, what are you talking about? You've achieved a great deal. And I don't know what I want to become. I said, I don't know what I want to become. Yeah. And I'm 52 years old because it's not about becoming, it's about living. And it's about mm-hmm. living that authentic life and letting it fearlessly take you wherever it can. And, and yeah. all you can do is just be yourself. And, and, and you're right. The imperfect, perfect, whatever that package is, it's a beautiful journey yes. and, and accept it. I mean, these, these 11th graders that we talk about or these high school kids that are suffering, majority of the suffering is because they think they have to fit a certain criteria. Mm-hmm. A, a, they have to fit a box. And if they just accept that, oh, you know, today I feel sad and I'm, I'm, I'm in pain or I don't have a girlfriend or I, have, I don't have a boyfriend or, or you know, uh, or uh, the fact that, you know, my car is not working or, the, you know, I get terrible in, in, in this test. It's, it's a small part of the bigger journey that makes me. Imagine if these kids in this high school, in this 11th grade, were raised in an environment where they came in and a teacher asked them, how, how are you doing today? And the, and the student said, I'm really sad. And instead of trying to fix the situation, the teacher said, do you want me to sit with you? Mm-hmm. And I'll sit with you whether, you whether you're happy or you're sad or you're not. And if you need anything, I'll be there for you. But, you know, what if we were just, instead of trying to fix the problem, we validated that it was okay to feel that yeah. and let them know that there's no need to be ashamed of it. And even though you're feeling sad, I still want you with me. Yeah. I still want you in this community. This tribe still wants you around and values you even when you're sad, exactly. even when you're confused, even when you're anxious. What if culturally we had a shift of that understanding where when people walked outside and someone was crying, you know, we don't even like, it makes it, I, I, I ended up growing up, but I saw someone crying outside. I got uncomfortable because like, I remember, you know, if you're, you're crying, take that in the other room, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, when, you know, then when you're, you know, when you get yourself together, then come back out, you know, what if we were you know, as a culture to walk up to these people and say, you know, you're welcome and you're worthy, whether you're sad or you're happy or you're anxious or you're, you know, you're excited and do you want us to sit with you? Yeah. What if we welcomed people in and, and, and accepted their value in all states? I think it would be an incredible shift that we would have. Um, Absolutely. And I know you're very, very passionate about this topic, especially when it comes yeah. to individuals who are going through um, addiction, uh, substance abuse. And yeah. uh, you talked to us about this in the past and you want to do something, uh, you know, whether it's an addiction recovery centers or in other settings, you actually want to bring a shift, a paradigm shift and how um, individuals perceive it and how healthcare providers deal with it and help them engage with the community again yeah. to get rid of it. What are your thoughts? Tell us about that. So I, I look at the system of recovery that, that we have in, in, this, in Western culture and we are for the most part trying to uh, treat the symptom of dependency. And in doing so, we're treating a condition, we're not treating the person. So we're saying, all right, this person is addicted to heroin. That's their problem. The problem is heroin. Help them accept that they have a problem with heroin. And then as long as they have a foundation of a program that gets them to accept that they have a problem with heroin, they will away from it. And that's not addiction. 
Addiction is not dependency. That's dependency. Right? If I was to take a person and put them on heroin long enough, they'd become biologically dependent on it more than likely. And then as a result of it, if I took heroin away, their body would go into withdrawal. It would be painful and they'd beg for heroin. They're not addicted to heroin. That person's dependent on heroin. Mm-hmm. Now, an individual who becomes so disconnected from what's truly meaningful in life, these bonds and connections to people, to purpose, to the goings on in the world around them, when those meaningful bonds are severed, they will fill it with anything that gives them pleasure. And I'm, I'm, right now I'm quoting Johan Hari, who says that you know, humans have this intense need to bond. Um, they'll bond with anything that gives them pleasure, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's a bag of snacks. And the greater that bond to these artificial things become, the stronger the feeling of ever being able to reconnect to what is truly meaningful. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that becomes addiction. That's why they feel this intense need for this substance, any substance that fills that void in, in themselves. That's addiction. And we need to start treating the human in a much more profound way. And so I've decided, you know, this year, uh, you guys don't, uh, after I, lo- I left you guys, I was recently had the pleasure of having dinner with you guys at your home. Um, a few weeks later, one of my close friends um, died from uh, an overdose. Um, and this is a person that I lived with in sober living. Um, and this is the seventh friend that I've lost since 2012, since I went into recovery. Um, to either, you know, this person, we don't know if it was an overdose or suicide. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Uh, at the end of the day, this person was not able to reconnect to the truly, that, what's truly meaningful um, and was never able to uh, really regain that experience of being alive and, and that authentic way of living. And he, this was a wonderful person. There wasn't anything wrong with who he was. He was kind of the king of bad choices, but he was a, he was a human being and he was worthy. And um, I've decided that I, you know, I look at my recovery and I look at the way that I view my recovery and I wanted to bring the opportunity of, uh, of bringing research to the world that validated the experience that I had. And so I partnered with um, a research team at Northern Arizona University um, and I partnered with a treatment center here in Austin, Texas called Infinite Recovery. And we're going to run the very first dietary intervention. It's a randomized controlled trial to study the effects of diet on physical health, mental health, and spiritual health in the early addiction recovery period. And so we're actually going to be using validated scales of uh, studying resiliency, spiritual growth. We're going to do microbiome samples. We're going to do, we're going to study C-reactive protein, like all these other inflammatory markers and whatnot. But really what we're doing is we want to see how the, how we can, if food really does play a role in reconnecting us, to that authentic experience of being human. Does the act of eating a plant-based diet have the ability to give me a greater opportunity to connect to a greater purpose? Does the choice of what I put on my plate, when I, I recognize it, when I removed animal products from my plate, I was then more willing to see the impact I had on the planet. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I saw the profound effect that the smallest of actions have on everything else in the world. Mm. The fact that there was, there's this great website that, that allows you to calculate the amount of gallons of water you save, the amount of Amazon for, rainforest you save, the amount of uh, CO2 emissions that you save simply by adopting a plant-based diet for the number of years that you've lived. And I look at it and go, how can anybody think that they don't matter? Mm-hmm. You know? And, and so we're going to run this study. It's, it's the first of its kind. We're really, really excited about it. And, um, 
what I'm really hoping to show is uh, that the recovery system as it is, is not broken. I don't think it's broken. People recover. I recovered. Um, I just think it's incomplete in its understanding. And I want to bring another piece of the puzzle in understanding the role that the, the way that we move through the world plays in addiction recovery in mm-hmm. regards to how do we sit still and recognize that sitting still is completely different from doing nothing mm-hmm. and that it's important to be able to sit still. How do we, how do we see the value of the, the way that we nourish our bodies and the effect that that has on the world around us? How do we put our feet in the dirt every single day and reconnect? You know, um, we were talking when I was with you, you know, the, the idea of the, the universe um, simply expands in a constant state of expansion and in its, in its expansion, it creates space. And in that space, things come in and out of existence and space was made for this planet. And on this planet, space was made for us, which makes us a, a significant part, not only of this planet, but of the goings on of the entire universe. And every single person matters. Every single person is part of all of it. Mm-hmm. And we, I, you know, I, I'm not saying that it's going to be a cure all for recovery, but I think that, you know, um, there was, there were some very, very close friends of mine that I've lost that I, if I just, if, I, I think, you know, if, if I can say, if I could have saved one of them, it would have been worth it. Yeah. And, um, and that's what, that's what the study's going to be about. Yeah. You, you know that we're very, um, supportive of this concept. Uh, we believe in this concept, concept strongly. We've done, uh, quite a bit of research when it comes to lifestyle and nutrition when, uh, with diseases such as Alzheimer's and, and stroke and vascular and degenerative diseases in general. Uh, but when it comes to cognitive diseases, we, are, we believe, and it's not just a belief, the data shows that lifestyle is profoundly more powerful. Yeah. Just exercise and its effect on anxiety, you know, significantly more beneficial than any drug out there. Yes. But why is nobody talking about it? Two reasons. One is because doctors are cynical thinking that people can't change. And second of all, and we've heard this. Yeah. And it's not a belief that we've heard this in talks. And secondly, because there's no money to be made. And there's no controversy there or conspiracy. It's just the motive force of our system. It's not yeah. there. But lifestyle matters and food. My goodness. Mm-hmm. The yeah. very thing that goes into your body four to five times a day and everything that, that you take in immediately can cause inflammation in, your, in the thelium of your vasculature with every meal, you know, the fat that you eat. How could that not have an effect on your brain? And we know it does, after, of course. Yeah. Not just on you know, at the, at the long term. That's a given. But even short term, it does. Yeah. So we are very supportive of this concept. We're, we're very, we're, we, you know how we feel about uh, so what your journey and why you're doing it and, and why it's important to be done. So we are partnering with you on this and we're going to help uh, uh, raise some funds for this. And it is needed. I think it's critical that we start a new avenue of research. We yes. just came from a meeting with the uh, directors of Alzheimer's Association California, as well as Alzheimer's International. And we were amazed that we were invited as the, uh, one of the few physicians in the conversation, because even in those realms, they've started to understand that lifestyle is central. Yeah. yeah. And, and for, co- for emotional diseases, uh, mm-hmm. or we won't even call it diseases, uh, for mental health, of course it's important and food is important. And, and beautifully, the way you said it, 
it's not just how it affects you at the inflammatory level and then the glucose and lipid dysregulation level, but with your relationship with the world. Yeah. Of yeah. Are helping them understand, like you always say, that they're enough and to remind them that they have a sense of purpose in life and to just reconnect with that. Of Everybody course. has yeah. something that they need to bring into their daily life to remind them of the importance of being alive and contributing to this world. Yeah. And I think nobody is separate. No, nobody's separate. Absolutely. Nobody is separate. Everybody is a part of the goings on of this universe simply by being alive. That's a, that's a quote by uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes. Just by simply being alive, you are part of the goings on of the world around you. And, and people forget that because we've become so isolated with, you know, we have all these, these systems that say that, you know, you have to, you have to be this, you have to be this or else then you're not, you know, productive or whatever. Um, and, and really it comes down to, to much more simple, uh, situ- it's much more simple than that. It's, yeah. it, you know, it's really, are you, do you wake up every day and are you willing to say that no matter what I'm enough, no matter what I'm worthy, no matter what I'm human and therefore I am, uh, worthy of experiencing the breadth of emotions because all of them are part of the human experience. And how do I create a a way of living that allows me to connect to the experience of being alive? That's really, that's really what I want to do. I want to help create a system for those who are in the early start stages of recovery, help to build that bridge back to their authentic self. Like I mentioned before, uh, the recovery model that I, I was exposed to is about how do we fix the problem in you? Mm-hmm. that you know that you have to accept that your your life has become unmanageable and without the help of you know a you will never succeed um bs in my opinion i'm sorry like i know it works for some people and i'm glad that it does and i don't dis aa i just don't appreciate the message that i that there's something externally that is necessary in order for me to be enough i'm sorry i am always now and i always have been enough i just forgot how to live that way yeah yeah absolutely um so we through our non-for-profit arm healthy minds initiative are going to start helping you um uh, with for this study and and uh, it's very 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 important study i think and i think everybody should uh, kind of pay attention and follow you yes uh do you want to say a few words about this study as far as how you hope to move it forward and what kind of help you need and uh, uh sure. I, I think this new model of of support for research is critical to free us from another form of bounds, which are the research boundaries that are forcing us into silos, which are usually pharmaceutical. Yeah. So I, so I started a nonprofit called plant-based for positive change. And I've partnered with a, uh, the, the CEO of the treatment center has a, a, a nonprofit called Heartwater, where he has people pour their heart out. Um, that's the, the meaning behind Heartwater. And um, I'm using, we're using Heartwater as our financial uh, sponsor because my 501c3 status is still pending. We'll get it before August, but we are fundraising. So if you'd like to contribute to the study, um, you can simply email me at adasud at gmail.com or you can, uh, you can contact me uh, on my Instagram at plantbasedaddict. Um, and I will uh, give you all the information you need to know to make a contribution to heart, water, and care of plant-based for positive change. And um, we would really appreciate it um, because I know, I, I am so confident that the, the information that we are going to produce as a result of this study 
um, which we are going to start in a few months. So literally just signed a contract with NAU. So it's officially, it's contracted. Um, we're going to start the study. We have enough of the funds to get us through the first half of the study. So the study is starting, but we, we still need funds to finish it. And um, I would just so greatly appreciate it. And I, I cannot, I cannot give enough appreciation to the both of you for how much support uh, you've given me. It gives me so much confidence in myself uh, knowing that people who I, I, I mean, there are doctors that I have an incredible amount of uh, appreciation and respect for Dr. Esselstyn, um, you know, Dr. Neil Barnard, these other people and, and, and Dr. T. Colin Campbell. And I love them, but there's something about the heart and soul uh, of Dr. Dean and Aisha Sherazai that is truly authentic. And not that these other doctors aren't authentic, but something about when I met you, I knew that there was something about you that I, I just wanted to be around. And you are two of the most incredibly authentic humans that I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. And it, it means the world to me that people that I respect so much see value in what I'm doing. Um, we're, we're connected for life, Adam. I, I think your story resonated with us the first time we met you. And we really believe in the model that you're in, introducing to the world. I think this is, this is the future. This is how it should be. And we are so happy that you're a part of our Healthy Minds initiative. And, you know, it's an exciting life. So let's, let's put out positive, uh, yes. you know, uh, messages and, and help, help people as much as we can. We, we, we think that the moment that we met you, we knew that this is the model for brain health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is from two neurologists that have worked in uh, some some. Some places that uh, that uh, speak, high, you know, about psychiatry and neurology, still are, do. and still do. Yeah. But but this is the model. It really is. Um, and 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 besides that, the fact that you're one of the most authentic people we've met. But given that, um, we usually say, you know, when the kids go to school, you know, we say have a positive. That's the first thing. Yeah. Uh, a, a it's a mantra know, every yeah. day proactive, you know, don't let happen, you know, just be proactive in life. Don't be afraid, productive, powerful, an epic day and epic life. And, and, and you represent all of those things. There's no fear because there shouldn't be any fear. You're perfect in the way you are. There's no reason to fear failure. That's part of the journey. That's part of life. And, and we're with you um, in this journey. Um, And I think the, the, whoever listens to you, will be part of this journey. And I think this study is so very important. Yes. I would go as far as to say, it's more important than any studies that are going in, in, in brain health and, 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 uh, and mental health and, and that's sponsored by NIH or NSF or any other institution out there. This is more important. So I would love everybody to give their support. We're going to put your information for uh, the viewers and listeners to, to connect with you and, and support you and support this concept. We can't thank yeah. you enough for sharing your beautiful story yes. with us. Adam, we love you. Yes. And we can't wait to thank see you, you again. And uh, I'm sure that the audience and uh, everyone who's listening right now is inspired, just like we are yeah. right yes. now with your life and your story. Thank you so much. We're going to start a GoFundMe uh, thing as well that people can contribute Perfect. to. Once we get that up and running, I'll send you the link and you can add it to the show notes. We're in the process of creating it right now. That Perfect. is wonderful. That's wonderful. We'll, we'll be, be happy to yeah. do that. All in. Until then, until we see you next time, Adam, have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you.